I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to continue our walk through this book. As we complete this over in the, in the coming weeks, uh, this Sunday we are in part two on the fruit of the Spirit. So we dug into this last week and just barely dipped our toe into the actual fruit of the Spirit. We looked a lot at the section of this passage leading up to uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And this week we're going to continue working our way through this passage and see that we know the Spirit of God dwells in us when the fruit of the Spirit grows among us. We know the Spirit of God dwells in us when the fruit of the Spirit grows among us. So if you have a copy of God's Word there, I invite you to read along with me as I read aloud Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Galatians 5, 16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Last week, we dug into the spiritual battle we all face, the battle between our flesh and the Spirit of God at work through the power of the gospel. It's the battle that faces each of us as we awaken each morning. And in this battle, the enemy within our flesh combines with his allies, Satan, the powers of this present world, to doom us in this fight. And yet we fight with an ally. Jesus said when he left, he would not leave us alone. He left us a helper, the Spirit. And our focus today is on the other side of this battle, the other side of the coin. What does it look to live life by the Spirit of God? What is Christ-like character? What does the fruit of the Spirit look like lived out in the life of a believer, in the life of the church? So Paul in verses 22 to 23 lays out a battle strategy for us. A vision for this new life. And then he closes with some exhortations. But first, let's look at this vision he lays out. What is the character of the Christian? A vision is a picture of a better future reality. It's the opposite of a nightmare. It's something you want, something you aspire to. And the vision of the fruit of the Spirit is both something that is in our lives and something we are aspiring to. It is something the Spirit produces in us, but also something God is constantly growing and increasing in our lives. We increase in these virtues by hearing the gospel. By responding in faith to the gospel and praying, God, would your Spirit produce these things in our lives, in the life of our church? It is something that is. This is the fruit, and it's also something that should be present in our lives. In other words, it's something that the Spirit produces in us 
and also something that we are responsible for living out. If you remember last week, we talked about this a little bit. It's the difference between justification, where God is the sole actor, rescue us, saving us from our sins. But the life we live in Christ after the moment we come to faith in Christ is a life of sanctification, of growing in grace. And this life is one that is cooperative. In other words, God works in us and we are responsible to respond to the grace of God and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Now theologians have tried to take these nine virtues and group them various ways. For instance, some say some are things we exercise toward God and other things that we exercise toward our neighbor. Or some of these affect uh, our mind or our emotion or our relationships. But it's tricky to do that because each category kind of flows into other categories. I mean, what's the foundational commandment for all of life? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's something that flows into every area of our being. And what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot separate these two. Love for God must flow into love for neighbor. And here we see that the foundational fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the foundational virtue of the Christian life. It flows from God's love for us, and then the rest of our lives should be built on this foundation of love. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4:19. How is it that God's people will love? We love because he, God, first loved us. Everything in life flows from God's love for us and through us to other people. Love is the governing virtue for Christian relationships. Because love flows from the very character of God himself. Romans 5, 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then in John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In other words, love is the mark of the Christian. If we don't love, we don't have the mark of Christ upon us. But love can also be a tricky word, can't it? Because in our world, it has often come to mean, love means that you allow me to do whatever I want to do. But what is biblical love? Biblical love is a love that gives oneself for the good of others by pointing them to God and his character. And biblical love then, therefore, must be opposed to anything that isn't good, can do harm. Now, let's think about this. How do we show, as parents, love to our children? One way we often think this is by showing affection, and that is one way that we show love. So, for instance, I see one of my children, what do I want to do? I want to show affection to them. I want to hug them. I want to show them how much I love them. But biblical love, it is affection, but it is also protection. Uh, so this past weekend, as you all know, we spent last weekend in the hospital with Clara Jane. By the way, she is doing great. Thank you for praying for her. Yesterday she was climbing a tree, so look out. But when we were there, our friends who were with our kids texted us a picture of a coyote on the side of the road just by our house. Now imagine with me that I'm walking with my children and that coyote hadn't been hit by a car, but it's alive. What is love? 
Love is protecting my children from harm. It's making sure that I'm between anything that could harm them. You know, at that point in time, hugs and kisses are good, but what they really need is protection. And biblical love is both affection and protection. It's why we think of love, we think of things like moms. We think of a mom showing tender affection for a child. But it's also why moms are mama bears. Don't come between her and her cubs. Look out. God, protect the man who does. Both are love, affection and protection, one tender, one fierce. Well, what does this love look like? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God calls us to bear with one another in love as God himself bears with us in his love. It's a multidimensional, ever-growing love. The second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joy is glad contentment in Christ, no matter what our circumstances bring. Happiness, on the other hand, is emotion rooted in our circumstances. We're either happy or sad based on what we're experiencing. Joy, though, is finding our contentment in Christ. It reaches so much deeper. It reaches beyond our circumstances into the very character of God for settled contentment. Even in the face of trials or loss. It's Job in Job 121. We sang this earlier. Job, after losing everything, said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing of plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is not a verse about being able to leap a building in a single bound. It is a verse about finding contentment in Christ no matter what circumstances God brings. Joy is finding out that when everything else is taken away, God is enough. The fruit of the Spirit Paul tells us is peace. True peace comes through faith in Christ. Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this objective peace that God makes with us, reconciling us through Jesus, produces subjective, relational peace, a holistic, harmonious relationship with God and with others. God does this for us in Christ when he reconciles us to God and to one another. Our peace is built on the foundation of the gospel. And then we live out this objective peace through the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now true peace isn't ignoring conflict. It's, it's pressing through conflict in a way that demonstrates true love and concern for the other person as you're pressing through the conflict. Love, joy, peace. So these are the flip side of the works of the flesh. Remember those strife, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. 
And remember, Paul is at one level addressing perhaps us as Christians, but more fundamentally, he's addressing the church as a whole. Y'all walk by the Spirit. So Ashley River, what is the shape of our corporate character? How would it shape our Sunday school classes? Our church meetings? Our phone calls? Our conversations in the parking lot? If we prayed for the Spirit of God to produce in those relationships the shape of love, joy, and peace from our interactions. Have love, joy, and peace flowed from you this week. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. We say here our ministry strategy at Ashley River is word, prayer, people, patience. Patience is what the King James calls long-suffering. That's what love does. Love suffers a long time. A Greek historian, Strabo, used this word patience to describe a city that is under siege. He pictures the inhabitants inside the city planting turnips and just waiting. Waiting on whatever's going on outside. And God calls us to this kind of long-suffering, this kind of patience. This word appears 14 times in the New Testament, 10 of which Paul writes. The idea is that as God's people, we wait. We continue waiting. We continue trusting. Even when we don't see immediate results. Now maybe you're like me. You ever have this? We're like, okay, it's 2021. Pandemic, goodbye, new me, hello. I'm working out and I'm changing my life. And so you work out one day, and you walk in the next morning, in the, and, and you look in the mirror, and what do you look like? The same. And you work out two days. You walk in, and you look at the mirror, and what do you look like? The same. And so you scratch your head, you begin to wonder, is this actually working? Does this do any good? You see, we labor often expecting immediate results. You step on the scale the next day, it's basically the same. But patience gives us hope. Patience gives us hope in God's work here at Ashley River Baptist Church. Sometimes we expect immediate fruit from preaching. Immediate fruit from teaching. Laboring. When God most often works this way. Sometimes he works that way. But most often he works this way. We plant. We plant. We plant. We water. We water. We water. And we pray and wait and pray and wait. And then what happens? God gives the increase in his time and his way. But we know by faith that God's word is never proclaimed in an empty way. It always accomplishes what he intends. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. The fruit of the Spirit is also kindness. Titus 3 verse 4 uses the same word to describe Jesus' incarnation. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared. You see, kindness is God's grace toward rebel sinners. It's being generous toward others when they don't deserve it. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is moral beauty. You see, people that walk in the Spirit are good, decent people who treat others well. 
The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Spirit-filled people are faithful people. If you walk with the Spirit, you show up to work on time. You don't have to be asked a second time. You're faithful in the completion of your duties. Spirit-filled kids and teens are kids and teens who are obedient to mom and dad. The kind of kids who complete their homework without being nagged about it. Christians should be faithful people who can be counted on to fulfill their responsibilities. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Sometimes in Scripture we see this word translated meekness. So the idea isn't that Christians are wimpy people, but rather that they're the kind of people who set aside their rights for others. We don't bang people over the head with our rights. The church of God should be filled with people who are strong enough to insist on our own way, but Christ-like enough not to insist on it. Gentle enough to yield in love for others. People who quickly and willingly set aside our demands for the good of the church as a whole. For the benefit of individual brothers and sisters. And ultimately for the name and glory of Christ. So that Christ may be seen in us. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. 1 Corinthians 9.25 uses this same word. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Well, what is it that athletes do? They don't eat like you and I eat. They discipline their diet. They discipline their daily regimen. They train. They discipline their bodies to excel. One aspect of self-control is the ability to control our emotions and our behavior by the power of the Spirit. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In ancient times, a city without walls is like a company without a firewall today. It's vulnerable to attack. It means that we can fall apart at a moment's notice. Recently, I was driving down Highway 61 on the way back into town. And as you know, if you drive down 61, it can be a little bit dicey because there are a lot of cars down that road and there's not really a shoulder. There's nowhere to go. In front of me was a flatbed delivery truck. One of those trucks you see from Lowe's or Home Depot or various places. And it had been carrying lumber. It had a few pieces of lumber left on it. And they didn't tie down those pieces of lumber. So as I was driving behind this truck, occasionally the piece of lumber would come off, kind of flying at you. Now the driver had no idea this was happening. But what was happening to the cars behind? You all had to dodge to look out, to get out of the way. That's what it's like to live without self-control. People got to dodge and get out of the way. Things, emotions, uh, things are flying out of your life and they're just hitting people. You may not even know they're hitting them, but they got to get out of the way. Duck. You're not even aware. The other side of self-control is discipline. Like athletes, spirit-motivated discipline empowers us to fight sin and temptation. So we have this expansive, holistic, nine-orbed vision of spirit-filled Christ-like character. And then Paul gives us a strategy for building Christ-like character. Character To continue the metaphor, we might call it our spiritual workout plan. Verse 24 introduces us to an idea that sounds similar to what we've seen before in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We call this, this crucifixion, this death with Christ, our union with Christ. You see, when Christ was nailed to that cross, 
our old man, part of us, our sin nature, was slain there too. Romans 6, verse 6 describes it this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That death with Christ, our burial with Christ, our resurrection with Christ, this union with Christ is essential in our fight against sin. As Puritan pastor John Owen put it, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So verse 24 teaches this idea, a companion idea to our union with Christ, crucify your flesh. Galatians 2 verse 20 we are being crucified. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. But here in Galatians 5, 24, we are doing the crucifying. In other words, we live out what we have received in the gospel by then crucifying our own flesh, putting the old man to death. What kind of death is crucifixion? It's a gruesome death. It's an agonizing death. It's a slow death death. And if you've walked with Christ for any period of time, you know the battle against your old self is agonizing and slow. This is what Jesus means, at least in part, when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Crucify your flesh daily. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die daily, Paul says. Oh yes, it's something we experience, new life in Christ, but it is a battle we face every day. Each day is a new opportunity to wake up and call Jesus Lord. To wake up and nail our flesh to that cross. To kill sin once again, lest we die. We cannot grow in the fruit of the Spirit if we don't also kill our flesh. The word that Christians have used throughout the centuries to des describe this is repentance. It's why we close every sermon by calling the people of God to respond in repentance and faith. You see, we're not sitting here looking for a few rogue sinners who need to respond to the Bible's call. Every time the word of God is proclaimed, God calls all of us to respond. All of us to renew our walk with Christ in repentance and faith. Every time the word is preached, all people need to respond. Repentance, crucifying the flesh, faith, walking in the spirit. And that, Paul says, is the second strategy. Keep in step with the spirit. Verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit is literally to conform to or walk in line, draw up in line with the Spirit. Now, if you know me, you know this is an understatement. I am not much of a dancer. But the way Paul describes this is, there is someone leading us along in this walk this dance through life. You don't dance lead. You keep in step with the leader. Walk by the Spirit. Follow His lead. To walk with the Spirit is to conform our entire life to the Spirit. 
to draw everything in line with the Spirit. It means time in the Word and prayer. It means fellowship with those who stir us up toward love and good works. It means seeing corporate worship as an essential means of grace. It means that the Lord's day is the Lord's day. We can't merely sit back and say, go ahead, God, and do your work. While lazily hoping we grow in Christ and wonder why we're not growing. We must also actively walk along with and bring our entire lives into conformity with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul cautions us to fight the tendency toward pride. Verse 26, let us not become conceited. The word translated conceit literally means empty praise. In other words, Paul says, don't give yourself praise you don't deserve. We tend to believe in illusion about ourselves. You ever have the experience where, I don't know, you look at yourself in the mirror, and even like the, the mirror tells you something, but it doesn't tell you everything because you look at yourself from your best angles. But sometimes someone snaps a candid picture, maybe while you're eating or walking or talking, and you see that and you say, that ain't what I look like. But brother or sister, I got to tell you, that is exactly what you look like. It's this moment we're caught out. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We weave a web, sort of a web of self-imagination. We create a comic book version of ourselves. It looks like us, but not exactly like us. It's a caricature, if you will. And we love to imagine ourselves as better than ourselves. Like those comic book characters, we add some muscles or curves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. You see, the thing about our deceitful hearts, as Jeremiah 9 puts it, 17 puts it, is the minute we're moving toward Christ's likeness, we're tempted toward pride about moving toward Christ's likeness. I mean, it's so easy to grow in Christ and get, I'm cruising. The tendency toward pride, we move so quickly from spiritual growth to spiritual pride. And what does this conceit produce? What is the fruit of this? Provoking one another, he says, envying one another. Provoke means to challenge someone to a fight. Provoking says, I'm better than you. You can't tell me what to do. It's the attitude of a teen who offers himself empty praise. Believing he knows more than he knows and provoking or challenging his parents. Envy is the flip side of this. It says, you got it better than me and I want what you have. One looks down, the other looks up. Both are forms of conceit. So to fight this, what do we do? We crucify our flesh. We die daily and we walk by the power of the Spirit. And I'd like to think for a moment about what this looks like. What is a holistic vision of a Christ-formed, spirit-filled life? Take a look back at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Then the list. Verse 22, though. The fruit of the Spirit is. Then the list. In other words, there are nine virtues that function as one holistic being. 
their collective fruit that grows among the people of God. Well, what is then the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is a Christian character that looks like Jesus. Jesus is the only human being who never sinned. Yet as a human being, the Holy Spirit walked with him through his life and empowered him for his life and service. We see in Matthew chapter 3 the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the Spirit walking with Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 12, we see the Spirit empower Jesus to cast out demons. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. So when Jesus looked at multitudes with compassion, he was filled with the Spirit. When he spoke with the woman at the well and told her everything she'd ever done, he was filled with the Spirit. When he saw the Pharisees and called them a dead generation, a bunch of snakes that overturned temples in the ta- tables in the temple, he was filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled, Christ-like character is as compassionate as Jesus is compassionate. It is as courageous as Jesus is courageous and as faithful as Jesus is faithful. Spirit-filled Christ-like character is true as God himself is true. It is gracious as God himself is gracious. How true is God? Absolutely, always, perfectly guided by truth. How gracious is God? A God who loves us from everlasting to everlasting takes our sin and casts it from us as far as east is from west. So it seems to me that spirit-filled Christ-like character must be seen more than claimed. It is caught more than taught. It can be felt more than quantified. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ. You ever have this experience? I mean, we're at this time now. You're like, you know what? It's not too bad. 72 degrees, 7 o'clock p.m. Let's go for a walk. You're cruising through the neighborhood and you smell it. Someone is grilling. And as you're walking along, you smell that aroma. And suddenly, I mean, you had no thought of throwing any meat on the grill, but suddenly, boom, it's there. Burgers tonight. Why is that? Because that, as that aroma wafts towards you, it, it attracts you, it compels you, it wins you. Paul says, we are that aroma. We are this winsome aroma, the aroma of Christ. Yet he also continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the other, a fragrance from life to life. The aroma of the gospel is to one person the sweet aroma of life. And to another, it bears the stench of death and decay. So what makes the difference? To arrogant religious leaders who cared about an outward culture of religion, Jesus smelled like death. Indeed, they killed him. To the sinful, notoriously sinful woman 
who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. The grace of Christ smelled sweeter than the ointment she used to bathe his feet. The fruit of the Spirit is the aroma, it's the fragrance of Jesus. Perhaps you've attended church faithfully. Perhaps you've never walked in church before. Christ is calling you. The aroma of Christ, the presence of the gospel is here among us this morning. The good news that God created all people in his image and yet since the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned, every image is a marred, broken image. Which means that we can relate to God through faith, but we cannot relate to God on our own. But God provided a way through Christ so that anyone who comes to him in faith humbles himself, turns from his sin, and cries out, Oh Lord, today is the day. Would you save me today? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Turn from your wicked way and trust Christ. Oh friend, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? So if we know Christ, how do we grow in the fruit of the Spirit? We've already said the text focuses on it as a whole. The fruit of the Spirit is these things. But it's possible, actually likely, that all of us are weak in some area. For instance, you might be really, really kind. But you're not faithful. Or you might be generally a pretty contented person joyful, but not real gentle. So I think there are two ways that we need to work through this. One, we all need to work out, and two, some of us need a little physical therapy. I don't really know anything about physical therapy. If you want to know about that, you can talk to Chris Horschel or Lindsay Wiles or someone who does know about physical therapy. Working out, though, is a commitment to the ordinary means of God's sanctifying grace. It's faithful commitment to word, prayer, Worship, community. What's the difference between working out and physical therapy? Physical therapy is focused attention on an area of weakness that needs repair. And what do we need? We need both. You cannot develop healthy habits if you're always focused on one thing. But sometimes there's an area that needs focused attention. Some people find themselves in physical therapy because their body is in such bad shape that it just doesn't work. They need help with everything. But sometimes churches find themselves in such bad shape that they need help with everything. If you've ever gone through rehab, physical therapy is painful. I mean, those, they say therapists, but they're a little bit sadistic. It's a call to pain. It's a call to suffering. It's a call to agony. Brothers and sisters, the way of growth is often the way of pain. And we need consistent commitment to God's word, the communion with God in prayer, to the community of God's people. We pray for God to develop the fruit of the Spirit in us. And then we respond to God's grace by seeking to develop the fruit of the Spirit among us. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ calls us to this vision, a Christ-formed life, a spirit-filled life, a life that is empowered to accomplish the mission God calls us to. Will you join me as we walk towards spirit-filled Christ-likeness? Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.